So, Mark. Yes? Today's movie was shot in the place where we live, in large part. Yes. It was actually shot here, which you could tell. For, you know, mostly. Yeah, mostly. <laughs> they did a lot of location shooting here in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Including what is now a Wawa in Georgetown. I didn't catch that. When they zoom out on his employment office at the very end, it is on that corner where the Wawa is now. That's a good Wawa. I've stopped there many times. Me too. I've used their bathroom without purchasing anything. I didn't know they had a bathroom. Don't tell. If I can jump in and tell a glorious Georgetown bathroom story... <laughs> During the pandemic, at one point, a friend and I went for a nice distanced walk around Georgetown. But because it was early days of the pandemic, we were scared to go inside anywhere. But I reached a point where I really had to use the restroom. And a secret skill of mine that I don't think many people know about is I have a talent for manifesting porta potties when I need them. I'm imagining like a vision board of different models of porta potties. It's not the worst superpower I've ever. No, I honestly I don't. I knew a little bit about this talent just because I do enough long distance running, and I'm not gonna say that I haven't peed on the side of a road a few times, but I have had a weirdly large number of times that I needed a porta potty and then came upon a porta potty when running. But the pandemic, like mid to late 2020 is where I really honed this skill because I would, again, be out like going for a walk. I didn't want to go inside somewhere. I would need to use the restroom and suddenly a porta potty would appear. So I was walking around Georgetown, manifested a porta potty, fantastic, went in, used the restroom. My friend and I continued on our walk and this was a male friend. And a couple blocks later, he said, I need to use the restroom too. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I guess there's a porta potty back there, but also like, look, there's this little alley I can block you. Just go, not that I condone public urination, but in this case, I was like, just, just go pee in the alley. Let's, you know, just keep moving on. He went, Rachel, I did not say that I had to pee. I was like, Okay, so we're going back to the porta potty now. I don't think that this porta potty was meant for public use. I think it was connected to the construction site that it was next to, but someone had left it unlocked. So we go back, he goes into the porta potty, and then these two cops walk up. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, my friend is about to be arrested for using a porta potty unauthorized. And I have no way to warn him. And so I'm doing the mental calculations in my head. And then I'm like, you know what? He's definitely going down no matter what. But I don't have to be part of this. So I just start walking away. Luckily, the cops also walked away. And so he was able to get out unscathed. But he didn't understand why I was half a block away. Until Is I... it really illegal to use a porta potty on the sidewalk Isn't it if it's unlocked? I assume it's. I assumed it was trespassing. I think it's like mild trespassing. It's probably illegal, but I can't imagine a cop stopping someone for using a porta potty. Probably unless they appeared to be unhoused, in which case they almost certainly would. Sure. 
Yeah. So basically what I'm saying is every time that I go to church and play and pray, forgive us our trespasses, I'm specifically talking about my trespassing into unlocked porta potties I find on the side of the street. Not to victim blame, but if you don't lock your porta potty, people are allowed to use it. It becomes a public toilet. In this country that has a public toilet crisis, all toilets that are accessible should be accessible. Nationalize America's toilets. Those early days, I ended so many outdoor hangs with people when I had to pee. I'd be like, ooh, I sort of kind of have to start having to pee goodbye because there's no other option. Or you could just be able to manifest a porta potty whenever you need one. There was one on my route with Shyla at one point that was always unlocked, and I did pee in there a couple times, but it is now gone, and all of the other ones are locked. But also, if I'm walking with Shyla, I usually just go home, like make it home. Do you have a favorite toilet in town? Like your go to, like, shoot, I need to go to the bathroom? Well, I don't really want to spill the beans on that. Because I don't want it to be overrun and people learn about it. As we've seen on the internet in recent times, some things you love in life you don't want to share online because then the people will find out and put locks there. That's fair. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you off air. There was a point in my life when I was, you know, cruising around downtown DC that I had memorized the codes to like five different restaurant bathrooms so I could sneak in and use them whenever I needed because I would go in and like buy a bottle of water once. Actually, I say I had them memorized. For a while, I'm pretty sure I had a note on my phone with a list of bathroom codes. This was before I had really developed my skill of just manifesting unlocked porta potties. So anyway, Mark. Yes. In the spirit of this week's movie, I'm wondering what is your favorite DC movie or your favorite representation of DC in a movie? So, as it is one of my favorite movies, and it is set in DC, it is broadcast news. Okay, I was also thinking about this. Because I love that movie. It is very much, you know, the hobnobby life of the journalists trying to rub elbows with politicians. Right, a climactic scene takes place at the correspondence dinner. But it's also, obviously, as we've discussed on our episode, which I remember that we did, one of the best movies. Although we should acknowledge that William Hurt was a very bad man. Yes, indeed, he was. Yeah, what I like about Broadcast News as a DC movie is, as much as it is like, you know, a high-powered kind of thing, you know, producing national news and going to the correspondence dinner and stuff like that, there's a lot of it that is also just like, people living their lives in DC and like, you know, go into the post pub or whatever. Isn't she just like walking on Massachusetts Avenue at one point? Yeah, rules. Yeah. You don't see a lot of depictions of our neighborhoods in movies. So every so often you get glimpses of just nearby, and that has to be enough. Uh, yeah, that's a very good answer. I was also thinking about broadcast news. Of course, I thought about National Treasure. Oh, of course. There's also The Exorcist, specifically The Stairs. But The Exorcist is another example, like, this week's movie that, like, actually shot in D.C., and you can show it. I remember the first time I saw a movie and, like, understood that it was not shot in the place where it was set was when I saw Salt, the Angelina Jolie, like, spy movie. You watched Salt? I saw it in theaters. Like, this is in high school. Some friend was like, we're going to see this movie. I was like, sure, whatever. (laughs) If my friends invited me to the movies to see a movie, I would see anything when I was in high school. (laughs) When you were in high school? This This isn't still true? This is still true. So I saw Salt, and, like, the final action sequence takes place on this, like, 
series of crisscrossing overpasses. And then just like the Capitol Dome is like pasted in the background. It's expensive to film in DC. So I do get it. It was just like a landscape unlike anything that exists around here. It is always fun when you get the establishing shot that is clearly DC and then they cut to a actual shot of the thing and it is very clearly not. I do want to shout out, I just found it while I was researching DC movies to make sure I came up with the best one. I found an article that is DC's biggest landmarks ranked by how frequently they're destroyed in Hollywood movies. Good. (laughs) And I just want to shout out The Thrillist for publishing a very specific article that I enjoy. And number one was The White House? Nope. Number one is the Capitol building in nine movies. Okay. The White House is number three with eight. Number two is the National Mall, which I guess is a monument. What about you? So I'm sure you all will be shocked to hear that I have a lot of thoughts on this. I thought I might say The Exorcist for one of my favorite depictions of DC. I also like that it is about a particular DC culture, but it's not government culture. That's a good point. I love the movie 13 Days, which I don't know is really an amazing depiction of DC. But you get some of the stuff with like the family and they go to church and all that. Right. Similarly, Argo has some really nice DC establishing shots, even if most of the movie does not take place in DC. One movie that I have to shout out because I have not seen it in more than a decade at this point, but... It really shaped my impression of DC before I lived here is a movie called The First Monday in October. And it's this like a Supreme Court movie. Yeah, it's a Supreme Court, not rom-com, but like bud-com. What? Yeah. So my high school government teacher had a rule that if it was your birthday, you should not have to, you know, be in class on your birthday. So if it was anyone in the class's birthday, instead of having a government class, this was an AP class, most people failed the test. She would cancel class. Everyone would have to instead make a birthday card for the birthday person. And then we would watch a movie. Okay. Like how much work did you put into the birthday cards? Depended on the person. This is like an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper you fold it in half. Oh no, she had craft kits that she would pull out for us to make birthday cards for the birthday person or the person who claimed it was their birthday because she did not make an effort to verify that it was anyone's birthday. You could not get away with saying it was your birthday twice in a year, but my school was also on block schedule, which meant that more than 50% of students were not going to have their birthday on a class day. So not in my class, but in another section, I know a bunch of kids got together and made a rotation so that at least twice a month, someone would have a birthday. But she always showed us movies that had a somewhat govy kind of feel. So that is why I saw this movie, because... This movie being, you said it's called The First Monday in October? The First Monday in October. I think it was Kevin's birthday, maybe? No. Definitely wasn't Kevin's birthday because Kevin and I have the same birthday. And it was not on my birthday. So some person's alleged birthday. So we watched this. And I remember it being, like, a fine movie. But it's definitely one of those, like... 80s movies that really romanticizes Washington as a city. And so in my head, that is just what 
DC was like at all times. It did not show the terrible humidity in the summer. It did. It was just like beautiful. It was fall. So I just had this very romanticized idea of DC in my head. And then I came to college here and had a lovely time and then lived here after college and had an actual life here. But for some reason in my head, I was like, okay, I know what it's like to live in DC. But if you grew up in DC, your life was basically like this depiction in the first Monday in October. And at one point I dated someone who had grown up in DC. And at some point he mentioned his family receiving the Washington Post every day. And I just broke. And I was like, oh my gosh, of course you got the Washington Post because you're from DC. And I bet you drink root beer all the time. And you always- <laughs> is, is root beer a thing in this movie? I don't remember. I don't but think I was, root beer is a root DC beer all the stereotype. Time, you always wore a little bow tie and a little suit jacket. Because again, it's a movie about the Supreme Court. So all the kids are like in the movie are like, really dressed up with that like you had a little bow tie and a little child sports jacket and it was fall all the time side note why is it always fall in dc based movies because that's when people want to shoot here yeah would you want to shoot in the summer uh okay that's a fair point so yeah anyway first monday in october um a more fun movie than an ap gov class but i haven't seen it in like 10 years so that's all i can say for it all right well, speaking of movies set in D.C. where people are inexplicably not sweaty all the time, let's talk Dave. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if it's like kind of there and then the movie at the end is like yeah it was there <laughs> that is a accurate description we'll dig in and see what's there and this week we are rejoined by our friend and fellow dc resident rachel to talk about ivan reitman's 1993 presidential doppelganger comedy dave hello everyone i assume you invited me for this episode because i too have a doppelganger who sometimes takes my place when i don't want to do something oh you're talking about blachel from the like crazy episode blachel has made other appearances on the podcast she's she's a great uh sub guest i know she's come up at least one other time i believe it but i don't remember it may be a result of the like portal hopping thing now there is one thing i need to get out of the way before discussing this movie okay in my head, if I looked away from the screen for a second, yep. Mr. Fishoder was the president of the United States. Part of the thing is, like, this is a very Mr. Fishoder performance. His voice, when he is being Dave, like, goofy Dave, is his Mr. Fishoder voice. Right, and when, when Dave is introduced as, like, this kind of whimsical fellow singing Oklahoma as he rides his bicycle home, you're like, this is a Mr. Fishoder scene. It's distracting, to say the least. And I will say, I think Mr. Fishoder is now the most consistent time I have spent with Kevin Klein. So it makes sense why I hear Mr. Fishoder, but it's still, if I'm not looking at his face, then I just picture a cartoon supervillain who owns an amusement park and a burger shack. Well, he owns the land. He owns the building the burger well, shack is in. he owns the building, yes. You have not seen the Bob's Burgers movie yet. Not yet. I'm going this Sunday. 
well, then you will get to see a lot of fish odor family drama. Oh, thank God. Uh, anyway, we're talking about Dave, which I had seen before, but I don't think either of you had seen before. Nope. This is a movie where the president has a pretty serious stroke and is incapacitated. And so they bring in a lookalike, uh, both the president and the lookalike are played by Kevin Klein to sort of just be the public face of the administration so they don't tell anybody how bad the president's condition is. I didn't realize that this would just be a straight-up Jafar movie. Like, <laughs> the evil vizier. Sure. Uh, you, you could also say, like, Iago. You could go for the Shakespeare route. Well, which one do you think I have seen more often? Aladdin or Othello? I think Iago's just in my head because that's who got cited in the uh, reviews that I was reading from 1993. Well, that makes sense. Because Aladdin was Aladdin too recent. hadn't come out Aladdin's yet. 92. It's the year before this. Okay. But yeah, it was just like such a stereotypical evil grand vizier that it was funny at a certain point. Yes, but I think it is. It's more interesting to me. Because it tries to do it within the reasonable bounds of U.S. politics. Like, you take Jafar. Jafar's whole deal is like, all right, I'm going to use magic to become the sultan. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas Bob Alexander, the Frank Langella character, has to be like, all right, so so the president's got a stroke. So he's off the table. The vice president will not play along with what I want. So we're going to pin my financial crimes on the vice president. He'll be forced to resign. We have this yokel appoint me vice president. We kill him off or whatever, and then I'm the president. (laughs) Like, he has the evil plan, but he has to work it through all of it. He's like, okay, so we're going to need Senate confirmation here. It's a good plan, but also he failed to take into account that the person he replaced the president with has a ton of leverage over him for blackmail. Yeah, he just kind of assumed that guy would do whatever he was told. Right. And the threatening murder in the Mr. Water noose, like, I'd let a thousand children die before I let my company die or whatever mode. I'll kidnap a thousand children before I let this company die. Really didn't sell him to me. Like, it didn't sell Dave on the issue of supporting this man. Mr. Water noose is a good comparison. I had not thought of that. When he said, like, I would kill a hundred regular people before, you know, like, giving up power or whatever, very much Mr. Waternoose running Monsters, Inc. vibes to me. So I first saw this movie probably, like, ten years ago. I was in college, uh, and I liked it fine. I watched it the other day, and I was like, this movie's, like, kind of quietly great. It's just, like, pretty funny, pretty charming. It's got a ridiculous premise, but really solid internal logic. So once you accept the basics of, like, Dave looks exactly like the president, you're like, this movie could proceed in this fashion. Right. And also, it has Sigourney Weaver. Hard to argue with that. (laughs) That's a good enough point for me. This is Sigourney Weaver after she has her Oscar for Gorillas in the Mist, after she's done two Ghostbusters movies, Alien 3 is the year before this. So she's in full movie star mode. And here she is reteaming with Ivan Reitman, who, of course, directed those two original Ghostbusters movies. She is very good at this. She is, yeah. So what about you? Do you have any thoughts about Dave the movie, about Sigourney Weaver, Frank Langella, whatever? Uh, So specifically Sigourney Weaver in this movie, I felt like this was a very effective use of movie star power for a character. Yes. If you think about, you know, Sigourney Weaver, I think, is someone who has a lot 
of movie star charisma. She is also a very good actor. I will admit that there are some actors that I think have a lot of movie star power, but they can only play their one movie star character. I don't think that's true of Sigourney Weaver. However, I think that this is a really nice channel of the movie star charisma that she has, especially at this point in her career where she in no way is overpowering Kevin Klein, who, to be fair, I think at this point also had an Oscar. They got their Oscars the same year. Right. So he is not some nobody, but you can imagine a different movie and a different pairing where the first lady character is a movie star and is kind of overpowering where she's there to sort of elevate this exactly. like newer mm. guy that they've brought in. And it's just done in a way that doesn't really work. But I feel like the two of them, although I have some questions about the believability of the romance, <laughs> which we'll get into. <laughs> look, I, she has a track record of being into guys who look like that. Sure. Um, but I do <laughs> think that they play very well off of each other in a way that's interesting when you contextualize it within each of their careers at this time. That's a really good point. Kevin Klein talked a bunch in like the press tour for this movie about how it's the first time he'd really gotten to lead a comedy film. You know, one of his big early film roles is like Sophie's Choice. <laughs> and he talked a lot about how that kind of defined his career. And they're like, right, Kevin Klein, very good actor, like serious, dramatic actor. And then he wins an Oscar for A Fish Called Wanda, which is a comedy, but it's an ensemble comedy. So it's not like he's the guy who's the who's funny. And so he talked a lot about really wanting to anchor a movie like this to show that he could do it and i read that like knowing kevin klein's career and i'm like that's crazy the man won a tony for the pirates of penzance like he could clearly do comedy <laughs> but i think that's also interesting in light of some of the other people that were talked about for playing dave like when ivan reitman was hired warner brothers were like hey ivan you're friends with schwarzenegger right like could arnold schwarzenegger anchor this movie and ivan reitman was like this is from an interview he did with the DVD came out. He's like, well, I'm Canadian, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Arnold Schwarzenegger cannot be president. A point that I was elected to lead, not to read. And they were like, no, 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 we'll say he was like born in the US, but then he lived abroad for a while, so like he'll be good. And Ivan Reitman was just like, or we could just not cast Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then, you know, Warren Beatty got talked about. Kevin Costner actually was talked about for this. And like Kevin Costner in this movie would be playing the straight man it would be like trying to do a like jimmy stewart mr smith goes to washington kind of thing and that's a movie this exists in conversation with but i think it's so much more fun having that like fish odor energy imagine if this was schwarzenegger i mean he is in it yeah he is in it i'll grant that we should we talk about this is ivan reitman's first movie since kindergarten cop um should we talk about all the people who are in this movie so many people so many cameos. Both of you, which cameo were you most excited to see? Well, I mean, I don't have a deep knowledge of 90s U.S. senators or the press corps. So, honestly, the most surprising to me was Schwarzenegger, and I did enjoy it. I really like Oliver Stone on Larry King correctly summarizing the plot of the movie Dave, but because it's Oliver Stone on Larry King, it's presented as a conspiracy theory. Oh, I did enjoy that. I forgot about that scene. I am furious that I missed it, but it makes sense based on how I know this person. Apparently, Nina Totenberg was in this movie, but it makes sense that I would not recognize her face because what I know is her voice. What's funny is like sometimes I was like, yes, these are like 
you know, politicians or media people from the 90s. And sometimes I didn't realize it until the credits. Like, there is that conversation where the speaker is, like, asking, like, oh, we're, you know, want to know how the president is doing. And Bob Alexander's like, thanks, Mr. Speaker. Like, appreciate that. And it wasn't until the credits rolled and I saw Tip O'Neill credited. And I was like, oh, I just assumed that was this movie's with a fictional president, their fictional speaker of the house. But nope, it was Tip O'Neill. Yeah, I feel like everyone portrayed in the executive branch was fake, but everyone in the legislature and in the press corps was the real 90s, not analog, but actual person. And so what does that say about the Dave universe versus our universe? I mean, they still have a McLaughlin group. It also, it cut to Jay Leno multiple times. So I want to know how far that goes. Does like every round of the late night wars exist in the Dave universe? Like, does it do the full like Leno and Conan in the 2000s thing? I think the dave verse is a very funny concept <laughs> alone. I was just pondering that. The Leno-Conan time slot solution is a real full employment for everybody's solution. The, I, what was in this bill? Because he announced a bill that said full employment. And that was all we got. He announced a policy of full employment. He didn't walk yeah, up to okay. the podium and say, we have a bill with like all the details ironed out. He said the new priority of this administration is full employment. Okay. It sounded to me like he just like had a bill because they described it as the Jobs Act at the end. Well, yeah, I think then after the real president died... Then Ben Kingsley was like, all right, we've got to carry through on his vision. We've got to make full employment a government policy. Let's write a bill and get it done. Like when James Garfield was assassinated and Chester Arthur was like, yeah, we've got to end the spoil system. Let's write the Pendleton Act and get it done. (laughs) Rachel's very excited about that. About the Pendleton Act. Yeah, it's great. I love the Pendleton Act. It is one of my all-time favorite acts. Do you have like a top five acts? Ooh, I wish you had done this as the cold open so I would have had time to prepare. Here's the thing. Do Alien you, and Sedition counts as two. Those are separate laws. Like, do you want the enemies that will be made on this podcast? Or if I actually run through my top five acts? I mean, there are some gimmies, right? Like, you get the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights, the That's, Ku Klux Klan Act. Yeah, those are the, so I guess it's actually unfair of me to say the Pendleton Act is my favorite because there are a lot of much more important acts. Mostly, I just like the Pendleton Act because, number one, it's, like, very vaguely relevant to my life. And, number two, it's one where, if you know what it is, you seem kind of impressive to be able to cite it. So, talking about all these, like, DC cameos, which, like you said, Mark, seem to include, like, half the U.S. Senate. The way that they were recruited, so the movie screenwriter, Gary Ross knew a ton of people in politics because he was a speechwriter for Mike Dukakis's presidential campaign. Mm. He'd like been in Hollywood. He like wrote movies. He wrote big, but then he left Hollywood to go work for Dukakis. And while he was working for Dukakis, he had the idea for this movie, which at the time was called Mr. President. And by the time they're making it, it's like early 1992. They're getting ready to shoot in the fall. He just went to the White House Correspondents' Dinner and just, like, went table to table trying to recruit people to be in this movie. Dave is a weird name for this movie. It is. It it feels weird that Mr. President has not been used as a name for a movie. I can so easily picture a, like, zany 1930s Busby Berkeley movie called Mr. President. I mean, I I would dig that. I'm shocked it doesn't exist. Now... There were a handful of people who agreed to be in this movie and then backed out, uh, most notably Lloyd Benson and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, 
who agreed to be in it, and they withdrew in protest because it's a Warner Brothers movie, and Warner Music released the song Cop Killer in 1992. And there was this oh huge God. cultural outcry against the song Cop Killer and about how it was like celebrating like people going out and like murdering police and how dare this be going on. This is a song that was like released during Rodney King, like after the trial was underway, but before the verdict had come out. I love this quote from Ice-T about the song. Ice-T wrote it. You know, the guy who famously has played a cop for 20 years on television, where he said, yeah, it's about like feeling like wanting to do this. It's a feeling I've had. But then he said, quote, if you believe I'm a cop killer, you believe David Bowie is an astronaut. There's at least one person that believes that. Well, I mean, that is true, that particular <laughs> example. But it was like this huge, like, cultural outcry against it. George H.W. Bush and Dan Quayle both, like, spoke out against it because those two loved speaking out against pop culture. And as part of it, these two senators withdrew from the movie. And also, Warner Brothers eventually, when they reissued the album, they with Ice-T, and Ice-T has never blamed Warner for this, pulled the song from it, and a studio version of it has never been released since then. Oh, interesting. There's a live version from like 2005, but that's it. But also, Will, free speech is really important and we can't be shutting down free speech. Wait, so I have a question related to free speech specifically in this movie. In the film Dave. In the film Dave. Um, based on all of the cameos in this movie, it's 1993. Okay. So the fairness doctrine is still in place, correct? Yes, the Fairness Doctrine only applies to broadcast news. It doesn't apply to cable. Sure, but does that mean that for the purposes of the Fairness Doctrine, broadcast news also has to have Oliver Stone on to give his understanding, his side of what's happening with the president to counterbalance the other perspective that the president is still the president? I think the Fairness Doctrine only applies to like coverage of elections. Like, I don't think you necessarily have to give airtime on broadcast to, like, any crackpot who disagrees with anything. I just feel like there were fewer crackpots during this time period who had the power and influence to really be spreading information the way that social media has enabled a lot of people now. And yeah, so there's fewer access points. I'm not convinced that broadcast would not be required to have Oliver Stone on for an equal amount of time every night as whatever they're saying about the president under the assumption that he is the president. Yeah, I don't think so, but I guess it's possible. The fairness doctrine does require some discussion of controversial matters of public interest to air contrasting views, but they don't have to be given this equal time. Okay, but that does say that broadcast does have to invite Oliver Stone to speak about this controversial issue of whether the president is the president. I assume there's some threshold that, like, it's difficult to prove. Like, you know, this stuff is all kind of ad hoc. Where There's some threshold at which they'll be like, yeah, we'll mention that there's disagreement about this. But, like, I assume for every top, you know, there's some crackpot who disagrees on everything. And I assume mm -hmm. they don't have to acknowledge that on every topic. Yeah, you could be like, I oppose the Pendleton Act. And if you, that one person. And that's not a position, that's not an opinion worthy of our attention. Yeah, I also don't think it's a, pol you could call it a political position to say that the president has been replaced by a double. If Oliver Stone is the one saying that, though, I think it is a political It becomes position. a political one. <laughs> I guess fair. Yeah, so Dave has this like, this DC, all this DC energy because of Gary Ross and all the people he knew from the Dukakis campaign. 
he actually brought it to Lauren Schuler Donner when he was working on Dukakis. And at the time, she was contracted with Disney. But the executives at Disney, which would have been like Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, said that they wouldn't make the movie as long as Republicans were in the White House. Because it's so obviously about like evil, corrupt conservatives that they were like, we don't need to invite the comparison. So obviously it was fine for it to come out when we had Bill Clinton, the paragon of integrity. Right, yeah. So it came out four months into the Clinton administration. And that means that it's like the beginning of the wave of like, we talked about this a little bit when we did the American president a couple of years ago, but like there's a real wave in the 90s of like the president is cool now and the president can be hot now movies where it's like this and the American president, like Air Force One is a cool president movie. Independence Day is kind of a cool president movie. I mean, they show the president, even though he's not the actual president, mostly naked in this movie. Right, yeah. In the 90s, they were like, oh, the president's not an old guy. Let's run with this. It is a very interesting time of, like, the sexy president. Honestly, we still mostly have sexy presidents in movies. And I think it got reinforced somewhat by, like, Obama. You know, that was two pool presidents in pretty quick successions in terms of, like, the cultural vibe of the president when they were elected. Right. This is very much a hot president movie, even if he's not, like, a smoke show. No, but but Dave is... Dave's hot. Yeah. Oh, Dave. <laughs> uh, Dave was a hit. It opened, as we said, May 7th, 1993 in second place with $7 million, but then climbed to first place in its second week. So what that suggests is Dave had great word of mouth. It did even better in week two, rose to number one. It ultimately about tripled its budget. It made $63 million against like a $28 million budget. But you've also got to keep in mind that For Warner Brothers, it's an even better deal because they reused those White House sets basically for the entirety of the 90s. Like, until they built the West Wing sets, the Dave sets were Warner Brothers White House sets. I mean, you gotta have some on hand. Yeah! We talked about this again on American President, how there are, like, three prop Air Force Ones that just get rented out to different productions. Honestly, owning one prop that needs to be used in many movies has got to be such a lucrative business what i really want is as more and more film production moves to atlanta i want someone to try to use the atlanta white house what's the the warm springs one no there is a dude in like it, it would have an atlanta address but it's like outside the downtown core who just built a replica of the white house just like on a hill and just lives there but all the flowers are arranged to say, like, Jesus hearts you or something like that. I had no idea this exists, and I lived in Atlanta for seven years. It may not have been there when you were living there. Oh, it's a, maybe. I think it's a fairly recent thing. Oh, you can use it for events. See, there you go. You can shoot a movie there. You can't. It's literally, it says, like, this incredible home is a great venue for a movie or TV set or special events. Someone's got to do it. Someone will. They will. In addition to being a commercial hit... Dave also got an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay, which I think is pretty cool. It was nominated alongside In the Line of Fire, Philadelphia, and Sleepless in Seattle, which we covered on this show, and all of them lost to the piano. It also got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy, and for Best Actor for Kevin Kline, and lost both to Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, what an encapsulation of 1993. It's all right there. It's all right there. So should we talk about the romance of yeah, Dave? 
I think in my head I was picturing American president, so I thought there would be a lot more romance for some reason, even though the movie is about the president body swapping. In my memory, there was more romance. It was very little, but I did enjoy it, even if I, spoiler alert, did not believe it that much. So let us get into it. Every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points. Rachel, will you guide us to point number one? Or should I say, quick bite number one. I, I don't think that made it into the Damn final it. version of the episode. In my head, they are called quick bites now. On our Fire Island episode, we talked about how the movie began as a quibby. And so to imagine that version of it, you just had to break the movie Fire Island into, you know, 10 minute quick bites. So then in the original version, before we lost a third of the audio, we called all the points quick bites. You know, don't you wish that you had a guest on who was also a fan of the podcast and had listened to that episode and could confirm for you that, yes, that actually is in it? Oh, it's in there? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh, I have great. not gotten to it yet. Okay. Quick bite number one. The thing is that I want to point out, this episode, I believe, is coming out like a month after the Fire Island episode. Yeah, something like that. So there's just a question of relevance. Anyway, quick bite number one. Um, the relevance has never been this podcast ever mattered. <laughs> Do you remember the days when, canonically, this podcast was recorded live This every podcast time is recorded live. <laughs> you have walked that back on the podcast. Again, this is why you need a fan to be in charge of a... Con- you need to, like, hire an associate producer who is also a fan of the podcast to, like help you with issues of continuity. Rachel, you keep saying this like consistency matters to us in any way. You're saying that we should be putting the fans in charge of production because the fans know better than like producers what direction the narrative should take. I explicitly said an associate producer, not the executive producer. But Will, we all know the most gasp-worthy movie moment is when the Flash enters the Speed Force. The Flash has entered the Speed Force. Um, <laughs> it seems like the Flash will not be entering cinemas <laughs> <Yeah>. this year. <laughs> oh my god. Alright, we were about to get into our quick bites. Point number one, the president and his wife are having marital issues. Okay, yeah, so we've got President Kevin Klein, who is a dirtbag. President Mitchell, I think is his name. And he and First Lady Sigourney Weaver, they like barely interact with each other. The president is having sex with Laura Linney. That was... Very funny to me. I mean, this movie is has a deep cast. It is a wild how many just people you recognize in this movie. Yeah, so Laura Linney is the, like, young intern who is enamored with the president. And, it, like, he has a stroke while having sex with her. We've got Bonnie Hunt as a White House tour guide. The president's top advisors, his chief of staff is Frank Langella. His communications director is Kevin Dunn, who we keep seeing in movies this year. So often. And then, of course, there are all the, like, you know, famos popping up all over the place. And uh, Ben Kingsley as the vice president. Right, Ben Kingsley is the vice president. And Stephen Root is the, like, used car salesman guy that Dave is working for at the beginning of the movie. So, as you say, the president and his wife have issues. They're not really connecting with each other. Like, twice the movie does this, where you just see it so cleanly mapped out, where they walk into the White House together and split off into separate wings without acknowledging each other. And it just so cleanly illustrates the way that whatever it shows to the public, these people are, like, barely involved with one another. They hated each other. (laughs) Yeah, it's really bad. It's really bad. And it's clear from conversations later on in the movie, like, you know, we don't know exactly where any of this started, but it's clear that Sigourney Weaver is hurt by the president's philandering. Yeah, and it's more than just 
that too. It sounds like he used to be, it's like the classic story of the idealistic politician that's corrupted into just seeking power for power's sake. Right, where she says, okay, you know, when it, when it started off and like the marriage wasn't always so great, at the very least I was getting stuff done that mattered, and now she has neither. Right. Point two. Yep. So as previously mentioned, the president has a stroke while having sex with Laura Linney. And so Dave is put in as the president and he pretty much immediately upon seeing her gets a crush on Sigourney Weaver, as I imagine anyone would. Who wouldn't? She walks in and I have a crush on her. Exactly. Yeah. So the whole premise of this movie is that like every once in a while they use stand-ins for the president just like when they need to, and they had, like, hired Dave for, like, that night so the president could go and bang Laura Linney. And they tell him, oh, you know what? Like, we just need you to stay on for a little bit longer. The president's having some health issues, but he's gonna be fine. But did any of you have, like, ghastly flashbacks when the movie started, like, showing everybody watching for health updates from the president's physician? I did not, but I understand you having it. I was just immediately, like, back in, like, the apartment I was in at the time, like, trying to get the cable to work so that I could watch the president's doctor lie to us about Trump having COVID. Yeah, I have a friend who lives on Pennsylvania Avenue, just a few blocks from the White House, and she was texting me updates of like, okay, this is what's happening with all of the helicopters. Yeah, I just like the whole thing about like, you know, doctors lying about the president's serious medical condition. I'm like, that that I definitely believe right now. Yeah, it's not surprising. I would believe it for any president, honestly. You mean like when Grover Cleveland had to get surgery to remove his mouth cancer, and so that nobody would know, they took him out on a boat into the Atlantic, and they just lashed the bed to the mast because that's the most stable part? I did not know about this. Did you make it up? No, that's a real story! Grover Cleveland had secret mouth surgery in the Atlantic. All right, so (laughs) are we now on point three... I think we're still in point two because like, okay. yeah, like, so, so Dave is now standing in for the president and Frank Langella, the evil chief of staff needs him to like be out in the public to make this whole thing be worth it. So for example, Dave and Sigourney have to do like a little, like go on a balcony and wave to show that the president is doing okay. And it's clear again, that she has complete contempt for the president. When it's done, she announces like, I'm not doing anything like this again for a long time. Who was she, Bill? Another patriotic secretary? Thank you for doing this, Ellen. Go to hell, Bill. I think we can get started now. Oh, and you can tell these two pit vipers that this is the last one of these I'll be doing for a while. But also, Langella has very clearly instructed Dave because they're nervous that she'll realize that this is not her husband. And so he says, the only thing that you are allowed to say to her is, thank you for doing this, Ellen. And so Dave just kind of keeps repeating this as she's asking him questions about like, okay, so clearly you were with a woman when you had the stroke. Who was the woman? And like, you know, these very pointed questions. And he will just pause and go, thank you for doing this, Ellen. So they don't interact a ton because she doesn't want anything to do with her husband. But there are these moments where, like, Dave becomes hugely popular because he's a nice guy. He has energy. He's excited to be around. The McLaughlin group is talking about the new President Mitchell. And one day, Kevin Dunn sends him along on the First Lady's trip to a, like, shelter for homeless children or an educational facility for homeless children. And there, 
Sigourney really gets to see like Dave in action, like being a friendly guy. Like, you know, he seeks out the kid who's not part of the group and is like, Hey, like, let's just like you and me have a chat. Significantly. He like tells the cameras to go away. He's like, no, I'm just interacting with Mm -hmm. this kid. This isn't a photo op. And also crucially, Dave, like all of us recognizes that Sigourney Weaver is a hottie. Yeah. This moves us into point three where the first lady realizes that Dave is not the president because as she later says in the movie on the way to the shelter, he checks out her legs and you can see like her lacy like shift or whatever poking out yeah president mitchell she says had not looked at her legs in a very long time sounds dumb um i found the shower scene very distressing and we're coming up on it (laughs) can we just talk about the shower scene yeah no so my question i assume the shower scene was when she realized that he was not actually her husband because i assumed she figured it out due to um, him not actually looking exactly like the president. But if she already knew that this wasn't her husband, then why was she so comfortable with a stranger's nudity? I can't believe you would do something like this. Not even you. How could you? How could I what? Don't patronize me. I'm not one of your little bimbos. And turn around. I'm talking to you. Will you please turn around? Turn around. You know, if you want to be the same old selfish bastard, um, go ahead. I've gotten used to that. But don't put on this man of the people routine and then do something like this. I don't understand. You know very well that was not a works bill that you vetoed. That would have given those children homes. When I think of that spectacle you put on with the little boy and the magic trick. Wait a minute, what's wrong with the magic trick? It was some magic. You made their funding disappear. I'm guessing, really, like, that's when she started to suspect it. It's possible him having a different dick was, like, the final thing where she's like, yeah, I'm right, this is, this is not the same dude. Yeah. <laughs> Her saying turn around as he's, like, hiding is so funny to watch, but also so unpleasant. Yeah, I mean, I don't think she was certain the minute he looked at her legs, like, this is an imposter! Yeah, that was just a clever retort more than anything, honestly. And also that becomes, like, she's, like, something weirder than I realize is going on here. And then the weight of all this other stuff, like him having a different dick, presumably. He definitely does, though, right? Like... Based on her reactions, she is noticing that she is not familiar with these genitals. Look, something about it surprises her, and she does chase Dave down at the end of the movie, so it must have been a good surprise. (laughs) So yeah, so the first lady accosts Dave when she finds out that, like, this big appropriations bill that also would have included some money for institutions like the one they visited has been vetoed. Six hundred fifty million dollars, specifically. Crazy! It is crazy to imagine an appropriations bill fully getting passed and then getting vetoed. When you think about the amount of work that goes into that, uh, <laughs> it's maybe it's the so least believable thing in about. this movie. Uh, yeah, because the president's not exactly a neutral party in negotiations on appropriations bills. So she goes like storming in, like you know, how dare you, like use those kids as a prop and then veto their funding anyway. So that's where David's like, ah, oh, I got to make this right. And he calls in Frank Langella and Kevin Dunn. And he's like, we got to make this right. And they're like, no, you're not the president. Like, we're not going to do anything that you say. 
Like, fine, you find this money and we'll go. And Dave takes him at his word. And then, like, at the next cabinet meeting, like... Well, first, he calls in his accountant friend. Yes, that's right. Mm. Uh, he calls in Charles Grodin, his accountant buddy, because, again, this movie's cast is so deep. We didn't even mention the homeless shelter is run by Anna Devere Smith. Okay. I Like, we can't even keep going in with it. It's so weird how many people there are. So he calls in Charles Grodin to, like, help him put the budget together. And the two of them realize that the way to fund social services is to say, screw you to the defense contractors. The defense contractors who are getting paid for delivering no results. And then also just like investing it. Right. Yeah. Part of the solution is like, well, we can take money that's not being used effectively. And if we put it in a bank account, (laughs) the interest will be enough to help fund this. What bank would the U.S. government use for savings? I, I love the idea of them just, like, opening a SunTrust account and being like, cool, we got a couple trillion we gotta put in here. Well, yeah, that's the thing, because I'm pretty sure the FDIC only insures up to, like, 250000 in a bank account. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> so you gotta spread so it around. So it would be not government insured at a certain point. Okay, so one advantage, Glass-Steagall is still in effect, because it's 93. So they don't have to worry about that. This is also like before the mass conglomeration of regional banks. Now, you're starting to get into dangerous like Andrew Jackson territory here because you could put it in a lot of different regional banks. But we have tried that before. What about like a credit union? <laughs> like a, a federal, federal credit union? Exactly. Will, I do have to point out, it is now Truist Bank. <laughs> That's what SunTrust was? I just knew Truist started popping up everywhere. I didn't know what Yeah, what SunTrust and BB&T merged. Okay. So and now I know now what that is. Truist, and that is my bank, and I don't like it, because I think that's a dumb name. It is a dumb name, and I'm sorry that you have to live like that. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so, is this the point, then? So, I'm trying to remember the timeline here of, like, okay, so we've got this going on. Through all this, Sigourney figures out that he's not the real deal. Yep, and she makes him take her to see her husband for some reason. I think... He's oh my god! He's in this like, secret underground it looks hospital, like face-off hospital. But it's almost. being, I think, guarded by the CDC for some reason. There's a reference to the CDC having oversight. He doesn't have a. There's disease. like one old lady nurse in like an old nurse outfit with like the paper hat and everything. And yeah, it's just the president in this like sci-fi room on a ventilator. He is presumably then just chilling there on the ventilator for the rest of the movie. Until he's brought out in public to die. Right. But then this brings us to point four where Dave and Ellen fall in love. He like takes her out into fake Lafayette Square Park. Right, they take the tunnel. LBJ's secret White House tunnel. You know, Dave... It is Dave, isn't it? I can't keep all of this a secret. Yeah, I know. I like doing it, though. I mean, not the fancy stuff with all the helicopters and the TV cameras, but I liked saving that shelter. I liked helping people that I hadn't even met before. Just then I felt like I wasn't pretending anymore. I don't think you were pretending. They like 
go get some ice cream, I think, or something. They pretend to be impersonators. And of course, Dave has been a, a President Mitchell impersonator. That's how he got this gig. But yeah, they're going around. One thing I appreciate in this is like, through this whole phase of the movie, it is not explicit. Like, this is a romance. Like, it is more the two of them building a partnership and learning that they can collaborate on stuff. They have similar visions for the country and they can use Dave's current status to try to advance that vision by like pushing for full employment, for example. But they're not like making out or anything. They just like seem to have a like growing respect for each other and enjoying one another's company. And that's when I started to be like, is this movie going to be a romance at all? Or are they just going to be friends? I felt it was kind of romancy from the get-go. I think it's flirty, but, like, knows where the line ought to be at that point. Because, again, when that happens, when they do that, she has just seen her husband. Her estranged husband, sure, but her husband, like, dying in an underground lab. Is that lab my favorite part of the movie? It might be. (laughs) The random touch of sci-fi really, um, really makes it something special. But, yeah, so they team up, they work together, and then... As we've alluded to, eventually they use Dave to, like, reveal all of Bob Alexander's nefariousness. And as this is happening, the president has been called in to testify to Congress. So, obviously, Dave goes instead of the president. And no, he volunteered. It's a joint session. Oh, he volunteers. But Bob Alexander is sitting there with, like, Bob Alexander for president gear. Right. He resigned. Well, he was fired. He was fired. And then... He's planning to be like present himself as like the whistleblower on all the bad stuff in the Mitchell administration. But instead, Dave is like, it was me. I did do it. It was also Bob Alexander, but Vice President Ben Kingsley is a good guy. He'll be a good president. And Dave then faints. They cart him out and then they switch the bot. They switch his body with the actual President Mitchell, who then dies at Walter Reed. And that's that. They've done it. Ving Rames tells Dave that he would have taken a bullet for him because Ving Rames also in this movie as a Secret Service agent. And Dave goes off and decides to run for Congress? No, for like local council. I think it's supposed to be like, that's why I texted you about it. Because I think he's running for city council of D.C. But his sign says District 6. One, D.C. has wards. And two, Georgetown's in Ward 2. I didn't think Dave lived in D.C. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure he lives... I forget where they, if they say it, but I think they say where he lives and it's not D.C. In my brain, it's like Montana, but I think that's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington being in my head. Yeah, no, I figured it was like... Like Maryland or something. Yeah. Yeah, he works in D.C., so it can't be Montana. Does he work in D.C. or was that Yeah, that's his employment office. Like, he runs an employment agency. But is the employment agency in D.C.? They shot it in D.C. I don't think it's set in D.C. Mark, you have to understand they do this in movies sometimes. Yeah, I had the impression that it was a much smaller town. No, literally, if you read the Wikipedia page, it says, Dave Kovic runs a temporary employment agency in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Weird. I don't know. I really didn't have that impression. Yeah, I also did not get that impression. All right, well, Dave is running for something. When they do the zoom out, it's pretty clearly Georgetown. If they were trying to do a small town, they wouldn't have picked such an iconic part of D.C. Okay, so there are districts in D.C., though. If he's not running for city council, he's running for ANC. He's running for ANC. Which, like, he has no other political experience. True. None that he can acknowledge. He didn't (laughs) run the country for a while. (laughs) Oh, God. And then in sort of the last moments of the movie... Wait, 
we know that Dave does not live in D.C. because he is a presidential impersonator at a car dealership opening and famously (laughs) D.C. does not have any car dealerships except the Tesla one. I mean, he may have left D.C. for that job. He might be in like Wheaton. But yes, of course, uh, famously United States Senator Tom Cotton insisted that one of the reasons D.C. should not be a state is it doesn't have enough economic diversity like having car dealerships. (sighs) Uh, Anyway. (laughs) All right. Point five. Sigourney Weaver shows up at Dave's campaign office to volunteer. And then and they he's smooch. like kind of stunned and they go into his office and they kiss and like everybody is staring. So then Dave pulls down the blinds. End of movie. Do you want to learn a fun fact I just learned from the Wikipedia page? <laughs> sure. The Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act was sponsored and passed by Pendleton because he was a pro-slavery Democrat from Ohio as a way to stop Republicans from using this spoilage system to support black people. That is the reason that Pendleton supported it. It is not the reason that law passed. No, but it's amazing how so many things tie back to a hatred of black people. Now, to be fair, like Pendleton was a bipartisan bill and Republicans who supported civil rights also supported the Pendleton Act. According to Wikipedia, it's the half-breed Republicans, which is such a horrifying phrase. Yeah, well, that was the name given to them by their opponents who were called the stalwart Republicans. Yeah. We don't have time for me to go deep on the politics of the, like, Reconstruction-era Republican Party. I think we need to bring back more nicknames in U.S. government for groups of people. Like, political factions, you mean? Yeah. We don't need to nickname other groups of people in U.S. politics. No, I mean political factions in the U.S. government, like the stalwart Republicans versus the uh, half, maybe not half-breeds, but Copperheads is a cool one. Well, I mean the Tea Party. Yeah, we have oh, that. Oh, God. Yeah. Now they're just all named caucuses. So, like, we have the that, Freedom yeah, Caucus. Yeah, I guess it's all the caucuses is what that morphed into. Yeah. Now that there are more people. All right, well, do we find the romance of Dave believable? <laughs> no. No. Do you want to talk about why? Uh, If it's not self-evident at this point. (laughs) Would you not feel so weird dating someone that looked exactly like your dead husband? So this is not exactly the same thing, but somebody I know is identical to the point that multiple people who know her thought that it was her. She and her sister-in-law look exactly the same, which means that her husband chose to date and then marry someone who looks exactly like his sister. It's uncanny. I've seen pictures. Oh, God. That's just... I, Mark, I'll send you like some pictures that. after we yes, finish recording. Like, I, I would like to see them. My dad, as a researcher, he has done some twin studies, and I sent him a picture of these two unrelated women and said, what is the relationship between these two? And he said, honestly, I can't be sure they're not fraternal, but I would be willing to bet they're identical. And I was like, they are not genetically related. Hmm. <laughs> 23 and me might be in order in some instances. So I think it would probably be a little weird. However, as I said earlier, <laughs> there is the point that like, look, she was clearly at one point attracted to this type. And here has anyone ever more been this type than Dave? Honestly, some of it for me is that she was once attracted to this type, but now her husband has hurt her so deeply. She has a lot of negative associations. Exactly. So... But there's that new dick. <laughs> there was also just, like, back to normal discussion. There wasn't 
that much development of their romance in the movie. No. Of course, all the movie asks you to believe is, do they get to the point where they'd kiss? Which is still a pretty Actually, tall order, given what we've yeah. talked about. I also just think she clearly is politically savvy, even if she's not actively in politics herself. And if she, as the former first lady whose husband very publicly died, now goes to volunteer for the campaign slash date, a man who looks almost exactly like I did wonder husband, about this. people are going to think that Mitchell faked his own death and it's a reverse situation where he is now pretending to be Dave. Right, there are going to be Mitchell truthers who like harass now, him constantly. Now, that's a sequel I'd like to see. Anyway, I do not think this was believable. So where would you rate this from 0 to 10? I don't know. Maybe like a 3. And the 3 is just because Sigourney Weaver is Sigourney Weaver. So like obviously Dave's immediately in love with her. I was going to go a 5. Mark, you're going to have to explain yourself. Because I was going to give this like a 2. Yeah, I was torn between a 2 and a 3. But like I said, Sigourney Weaver's hot. So I'll give You're not wrong there. Mark, justify your 5. Explain yourself. Because they do spend a lot of time doing politics together. And a lot of people that do politics together sleep together. I mean, that's true. Do they actually spend that much time? I have the sense that at most she knows his real identity for like a couple weeks. But also, like Will said, the movie asks us to believe that they would kiss. And I believe that if I was in a position, I would kiss Sigourney Weaver. Well, the thing is, you have to believe that she would kiss him because she tracks him down. That dick? (laughs) (laughs) I think a four, maybe. All right. Sure. I don't know. Uh, The movie is so ridiculous that it's weird to, like, trying to exist in the world. Like, I'm trying to inhabit the world in which this is a thing that could possibly happen. This is a world where Kevin Dunn has been allowed to grow a beard. This is a world where there are two men that look identical to the point where people don't recognize him in person. Like, Mark, if there were someone who looked exactly like Nick, but acted totally differently, do you think he'd be down to Well, I like Nick, is the difference. (laughs) She hated her husband. Sure, but still. So... You would be weirded out if someone looked exactly like Nick. I would be weirded out if I saw someone that looked exactly like you. And yet, people in this movie aren't that phased by it. Does your podcast know that Mark actually has, like, four doppelgangers running around (laughs) That is true. I keep forgetting I do. And then someone will be like, oh, I saw one of your doppelgangers again. I feel like, at the end of the day, one of my main justifications... Any romance that has Sigourney Weaver in it is going to be believable to me because at least half of the partners in the romance will want to be with Sigourney Weaver. Sure, but then it goes the other way where like Sigourney Weaver can be with literally anyone, so it has to be worth her while to do whatever she's choosing to do. So do you think any of these people are dateable? I guess Dave and Ellen, are they dateable? Um... Yeah, I don't know that I myself would want to date Dave. I would date Dave. I don't think I want to date someone who's going into politics. Okay, that's fair. I would date pre-movie Dave more than post-movie Dave, honestly. Dave seems really fun. He seems very fun and very caring. Biking around and singing, you know, I can dig that. Yeah, And I think Ellen is also 
dateable. She's great. Yeah. Ellen is great. Um, if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? I mean, it has to be Ellen, right? Like, if you can date Sigourney Weaver, why are you going to date anyone else? But hear me out. Ving Rhames. <laughs> if Ving Rhames showed up in, like, a good-looking suit and told me, your country needs you, I would do anything. <laughs> I think I'm dating Dave. I think he's a fun guy. The chaotic energy of you and Dave together. <laughs> it would be great. It would burn down the world. The question is, if Will were dating Dave, would Will always be the straight man in their relationship? I feel like it would be more anarchic than that. Like, we'd just be passing that back and forth. You would slowly lose friends. Yeah, all right. By slowly, I don't know how slow it would be. As someone who is friends with you, I just think the two of you together would reach an energy level that the rest of us might not be able to handle. Do we think Dave and Ellen would stay together? Are they even together? Unclear. Unclear. I think she is going to get too disenchanted with being back into low-level politics and not want to deal with all of that. Right. As a former first lady, she could be working at a more powerful level even without a like official role. And we've seen, I don't mean this in a bad way, we have seen that she likes being able to wield her power for good. And she would not be able to do that if her partner were really, really seriously trying to be in the ANC. Yeah. (laughs) I will say, if there was any political position where she could still do whatever she wanted because no one paid attention, it would be ANC member. Hey, I know someone who unironically is planning to use the ANC ultimately to become president. That's a dumb plan. That is a very long plan. Now, Mark. Yes. And Rachel, one uh-huh. last important question. Should the film Dave be adapted into a stage musical? Absolutely. You don't even need them on the stage at the same time. You're saying like the two Daves. Yeah, the like two Dave Daves. And Mitchell. Like the double casting. No, yeah, of course. You'd have one guy playing both roles like in the movie. Yeah. I think it would be hilarious to see this set to music. So I originally wanted us to cover this in 2018. But I didn't push hard enough for it because my goal then was for us to see the movie Dave and also see the brand new stage musical Dave at Arena Stage here in D.C. where it premiered in the summer of 2018 and I just dropped the ball on the scheduling. Did the musical do well at all? It did okay. Hasn't been produced anywhere else of note is what I'll say. I think it would be fun. It's a good idea. Enough so that I I remember seeing somebody, I don't remember who, but somebody with a substantial following on Twitter talking in, like, the last six months about, like, man, Dave is great. Dave is the kind of thing they should be adapting into musicals. And then there were, like, a handful of DC theater nerds being like, they did! Well, I think that's about it for Dave. A delightful movie. I'd recommend it if you have not seen it. It's a really good time. Next week, a movie that I cannot recommend. Mark is graduating at long last. So we're talking about High School Musical 3 senior year. If you haven't seen it, keep it that way. Good for you. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. Last question, what is the best piece of dating advice we got from Dave? Um, I would say if something sad or upsetting has happened to someone that you care about, take them out for ice cream. Volunteering is sexy. <laughs> 
look, this movie shows it's really important to know exactly what somebody's dick looks like so that if they're replaced, you can know whether it's an upgrade or a downgrade. But make sure you do it consensually. Well, of course, of course. <laughs> All right, there you go. Till next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye-bye. Bye.